Here we are, Job class number three. All right? Let's pray, and then we're going to just jump right in, all right? Father in heaven, thank you for this great book. Thank you for um, the, the scary nature of this book, too, of an innocent man suffering greatly, severely, being tested severely for his faith. Thank you for your compassion and your mercy that upheld him through all of it. What hope there is for us who will suffer probably far less than he did. And yet we find you to be the same God. And we also thank you for the way that this gives us gospel anticipations of your son, the innocent sufferer, who suffered because of my sin, our sin, not because of his own. And yet how you restored us through that suffering. Suffering is a major part of our life. It is a part of the hope that we cling to, the suffering of Jesus Christ at the cross. You built suffering into your economy of what you want to accomplish. That's amazing. And so, Lord, we ask for teachable hearts. We want soft hearts that will be moldable to what you want to shape them into. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take your Bibles this morning and open them up to John... John, that's where my Bible is right now, um, to Job chapter 1. Just to review while, we, while you're turning there, uh, Job was probably, we think, written by Job. You may think that's obvious. Uh, it's, it's not to many, but um, he lived 140 years after his suffering, and he probably had plenty of time, therefore, to sit around and think on those um, dialogues that went on, those speeches that went on. Um, that puts his lifespan around 200 years. Uh, he, therefore, we believe, was uh, from the patriarchal period, either just right before Abraham or concurrent with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He lived in the land of Uz, Job chapter 1, verse 1, which is to the south and the east of the Dead Sea. He did not live in the land of promise. He did not live in the land of Canaan, that God specifically marked out for Abraham and his descendants. Job and his friends in this book appear to be nothing but monotheistic. There is only one God in their minds. It is the true God. It, it is um, full of orthodox or consistent biblical view of God. There's not some kind of, these are not idolaters trying to figure out what's going on with Job. His friends appear to have a faith like that of Abraham's faith where you believe and it is reckoned to you as righteousness. Everything Smed just talked about um, in Romans 9 with that kind of faith, um, including Job, of course. But they do not appear, Job does not appear to be included within the Abrahamic promise. It is possible to have Abrahamic faith or a faith like that of Abraham's but not be within Abraham himself and his descendants in the land of promise. Um, he is just outside of that, probably a contemporary to it. You can see the structure and the summary of Job there. There's a bookends on the book of Job, the introduction or the prologue, and then the epilogue at the end. Those two sections are absolutely determinative on how you're going to interpret all of the speeches in the middle. And we'll talk about that more in the coming weeks t 
together, Lord willing. Job is a part of the wisdom literature in your book. It uh, starts off that section of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. I've provided for you also, if you go to the top of the web page for the equipping hour for the class on Job, there is a reading plan for you there that will take you through Job in about 35 days. Um, if you've been reading since the first, when we first started, you will have read the first 20 chapters as of about today. Um, but if you haven't started yet, feel free to download that or just look at it. It's a 19-page PDF. Uh, you'll want to look at those questions to guide you through your reading. And I gave you a little bit of an overview there of our remaining classes together. So that's kind of the roadmap of where we've been and kind of what you can expect in the Sundays to come. I want to jump back into, though, this morning, the special purpose and the place of Job in your Bible. It's a very special book. Every book of the Bible is special, but this has a unique place to sit. And I've given to you a statement there that just says, through Job, through this book, God provides early gospel anticipations. And what we mean by early is that that Job lived during the patriarchal period. So during the time when God is revealing, he's making more clear than ever that righteousness comes through faith alone. And that is being modeled out and lived out by Abraham. While that is happening, while God is saying, go to this land, I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to bless you there. The nations are going to be blessed through your family. While God is saying all of that, he is also at the same time, through a contemporary like Job, he is giving gospel anticipations. He's providing through this book categories that will make the hearer of the story or the reader of the story go, oh, there's something coming. It gives them a category to think about gospel suffering. Think about it. An innocent man, well established in Job chapter 1 and 2. He's an innocent man. He suffers undeservedly. Think of Job 42. He is the one that God uses to help restore the friends who sinned. Um, What does that make you think of? These are gospel categories, gospel anticipations that are given to us. And so I've put together seven of them. You could probably come up with 20 of them. We covered the first four, and I want to review them briefly this morning and then give you the last three as well. Job chapter 1, verse 6. This is the first one, a satanic attack against God. And by the way, just full stop right there. That's pretty much what the book of Job is about, mostly. Yes, a man is suffering, but it is about a satanic attack on God and his character. Um, But a satanic attack against God tests the faithfulness of his innocent servant. This is Satan's primary aim in this world, whether he does it personally, directly, or through his demons. And by the way, he can also do it through your flesh. You do not need a demon. You do not need Satan specifically. You've got flesh, and you've got all your own problems that will try to make you be unfaithful to God. Okay, But his plan, the devil's plan, is to test the faithfulness of God's servant, to test it in order to destroy it. He prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the earliest record of any satanic testing is in the garden, about on the third page of your Bible. Adam and Eve's faithfulness to God was tested and destroyed. God's 
character was attacked, God's motives were attacked, God's word was attacked, and that tested whether or not Eve and Adam would remain faithful to God. You move to the New Testament, you've got the example of Judas. Satan enters into Judas. Satan wants to sift Peter like wheat, and especially Jesus' temptation in the wilderness before his ministry, all the way through to his last night in the garden, all the way through his time on the cross. The point, what is Satan doing all the time? He is roaming about on earth looking to test faithful servants of Yahweh, faithful servants of Jesus Christ, to attack the character of God, to attack um, God's motives, to, to create doubt in the mind about what God is doing. Satan hates God. He maligns him at every point, and that therefore becomes a test in the faithful servant whether or not he will remain faithful to that God who is being attacked. Job 1, verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. Yahweh said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. What was he doing roaming about on earth? We know. God knew. God saw in the garden exactly what happened. He wasn't roaming. He was slithering. And that helps you to hear then Yahweh's question the right way in verse 8. Have you considered Job, my servant Job? God knew exactly what Satan was up to. Have you considered Job? Is that where you've been? In fact, if you look in your margin, you might even see that your Bible says, Have you set your heart on Job? Is that where you've been? God says, because I know you look for my faithful ones. You've done it before, and you're going to do it again. And you notice Satan's response. How does he respond? Verse 9, he answered Yahweh, does Job fear you for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. He says that like he's been there already. And you know what? He has. That's where he's been at. He has been roaming about. He's looking for his next victim. He has found him. And God asked him, you've considered Job, haven't you? You need to hear that question the right way. Satan is not some aimless character wandering about down a dusty road, kicking a rock with no big plans, and all of a sudden he shows up into God's presence, and God is the one who for the first time brings up Job's name to Satan. That is not what is going on. So God's question came, and the same scenario happens again in chapter 2. It's not the introduction of Job to Satan by God, as if Satan would never consider has, has never considered Job already. And the whole rest of Job is about Job's faithfulness being tested severely by Satan through Job's suffering, and he's also tested by God's silence. Job starts off very well, chapter 1 and chapter 2, and even chapter 3 as he starts to lament and complain, but he begins to wobble. And all of this provides a helpful category for what's going to come in the Bible. Listen, if any servant's faithfulness would be hated by Satan, whose faithfulness would it be? Jesus Christ's faithfulness to his Father. 
The sinless son was tested in the wilderness at the front end of his public ministry. And what a contrast to the garden. Adam and Eve had everything they ever needed. It was a paradise. Jesus goes out into the wilderness, not a paradise. He fasts for 40 days. And then the temptations came. And Satan tried to get him to be unfaithful to his father. And Jesus remained faithful. And Luke 4, 13 says he left him for a more opportune time. Satan left Jesus for a more opportune time. Was it when Peter tried to get Jesus to not go to the cross and Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan? Perhaps it was the last night before his death when Satan is getting Judas to deny and betray him and get Peter to deny him three times. Perhaps it's when he's in the garden where he would be tested as to whether or not he would submit to his own will or the will of the Father. Certainly on the cross when Jesus is crying out and there is no answer. Will he remain faithful to the end? There was no greater faithfulness ever on the earth to God, and therefore there was no greater testing of faithfulness on earth except the testing of Jesus Christ. So a satanic attack against God tests the faithfulness of his innocent servant. You say, well, are you talking about Job or are you talking about Jesus? Yep. That's what we're talking about. It gives you a category for what is happening. And therefore, what about for you or me? We may not know a lot of things in and about our suffering, but we do know this. One of the things that happens in our suffering is our faithfulness to God, our faithfulness to Jesus Christ is being tested. God's character may be maligned. God's motive towards you may be questioned. God's word may be confused, twisted, maligned perhaps in your thoughts, even in your own head, in your own way. And that is why it is so important to guard your view of God when you are suffering. And we'll talk about some of these things more in the weeks to come. Certainly, you should not think that something strange has happened to you. Why am I suffering? Really? This is what happens in this world with God's faithful servants. Peter said this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing is happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. A satanic attack against God tests the faithfulness of his innocent servant. Um, God's silence might test you. Um, but wrong thoughts about God coming into your head are going to test you in ways that you never imagined. It'll test whether or not you'll remain faithful. You need to be aware of that. Secondly, second gospel anticipation. An innocent servant faithfully endures undeserved suffering. This is the inseparable outcome from the first. An innocent servant faithfully endures undeserved suffering. If the first gospel anticipation is all about, you're going to be tested. The second one is, you're going to endure you're going to make it. If the first one is sobering, the second one is comforting. And the story of Job is that though he was tested severely, 
through undeserved suffering, he endured to the end. That's the story. To use the language of Job, if you look at chapter 1, verse 11, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. That's what Satan said to God. To use the language of Job, Job did not curse God to his face. He remained faithful. He held fast to his integrity. That's what his wife asked him. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. No, he held fast to his integrity. He spoke what was right of God. That's Job 42, as you'll see in a moment. God affirms Job's faithful endurance, even in chapter 42, even though it is true that Job certainly developed an attitude toward God um, throughout the middle portion of the book. And of course, then, if Job is about his endurance, then the innocent, suffer, uh, the innocent servant, Jesus, is the one who faithfully endured his undeserved suffering. It gives you a category to start thinking about what he endured. On the cross there, even though he cried out with no answer in return from his father, he remained resolute to his very last breath, using that very last breath to deposit his life into his father's hands. From Job to Jesus to you to me. You know that the goal is that you must endure your suffering. You must endure. And this is exactly what James teaches. Let's go there just for a moment and remind ourselves what Josh preached to us the last couple of weeks. James 5, verse 11. This is the teaching of the New Testament in regards to using Job. We count those blessed who endured... You have heard of the endurance of Job. He doesn't say you've heard of the suffering of Job. That's, that's a given, yes. But you've heard of his endurance. That's the point. You've heard of the endurance of Job and you have seen the outcome. What? What is it? It's all about the Lord. It's all about God. The Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. God is full of compassion and merciful to hold on to suffering servants so that they endure to the end. He did this for Job. Will he not do it for you in your scene of suffering? And Jesus, put your trial of suffering into the vast shadow of his suffering at the cross in your place in order to draw encouragement there from his excellent endurance. Is there any better endurance? Just go back a few pages to the left in your Bible to James chapter, or I'm sorry, to Hebrews chapter 12. Fix your eyes, verse 2, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured. That's how you're going to run with endurance the race that is set before you, verse 1. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why would I look on his endurance? Why would I want to look on his endurance? Because you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's for the purpose of you not growing weary and losing heart. So whatever it is you're going through, you can always run back to the cross. You can always run back to the suffering. But in particular, you run back to the endurance of Jesus and you see his endurance.
and you draw encouragement there for your own. If God could uphold Job, and if Jesus endured to the end, he will uphold you. He will. Third category, third gospel anticipation. Number three, the cries of an innocent sufferer are not always answered by God. Job gives you a painful, uh, what, from chapter 3 to about chapter 38. (laughs) Uh, No answer from God. It goes on and on and on and on and on. And that gives you a category for another innocent sufferer who will cry out in his suffering and not be answered. And so again, think, that when was Job written? Way back in Abrahamic time period. What does, God, what does that say about what God wants his people to start thinking about? Very early on, what a tender thing, important, caring, a way to care for his servants early on. So Job cries out over and over and over, um, and he gets no answer. It's very, very sobering. It's, it's heart-wrenching. All Job wants is for God to explain himself. But God isn't explaining himself. He doesn't explain himself. In fact, even when he restores Job at the end and the suffering comes to an end, he still then doesn't explain himself what was going on. Could there be any more heartbreaking scenario? And the answer is yes. The eternal innocent suffering son crying out on a cross to his father who will not listen to him because he is the sin bearer bearing my sin bearing yours my God my God why have you forsaken me no reply the silence for Job was tragic but it was terrifying for Jesus because he was under the wrath of Holy God. God was accomplishing something in Job, in Job's suffering, that he didn't feel obligated to reveal to Job at the time. And we know because we were able to read Job 1 and 2, and Job didn't have that when it was happening. We know that God was proving that Job would remain faithful to him even though you took everything away from him, even though his health was brought to the edge of the grave, and especially knowing that he would not hear from God why this was all happening. Job remained faithful to the end. And that is what God was proving through the book of Job. God was accomplishing something very important through Job's suffering. Listen, that his silence served. God's silence was serving a purpose Job had no idea of. And with Jesus, how much more? Jesus persevered through all of that terrifying silence. And God was accomplishing something very important. It's called atonement. It's called substitution. It's called paying the penalty. And he was accomplishing something very important through Jesus' suffering and his silence was serving that. His silence was serving something very beneficial. Should we expect a special exclusion in our life? But listen, 
you and I have gotten so much better because God has spoken so much to us already and he will keep speaking to us in our suffering as long as this is near us and open while we're suffering. But that doesn't mean that he is going to explain everything that he's doing in your suffering. The only way God will be silent in your suffering is if you close this and don't look at it. But that doesn't mean he'll explain everything in your adversity, in your trial, in your suffering. But you can count on this. If God doesn't explain everything and remains silent in some ways during your suffering experience, you can be assured that just as his silence served a greater purpose in Job, and just as his silence served a greater purpose in Jesus' suffering, his silence will serve a greater purpose in yours that you do not know, but it's serving a purpose. Fourth gospel anticipation. Number four, God ordains mystery and misunderstanding within undeserved suffering. God ordains mystery and misunderstanding with undeserved, within undeserved suffering. Boy, you think as, as you read Job chapter 1 and 2, and as soon as they start talking, as soon as Job starts talking, and then Job's friends get all ticked off at him and start talking, you're like, oh my goodness, how long is this going to go on? They, they can't see what happened in chapter 1 and 2. Think of all that mystery. The mystery of the exchange in heaven between God and Satan concerning Job's faithfulness. That, that mystery never gets cleared up. And from that mystery comes so much misunderstanding. Job misunderstands God. Job's friends misunderstand what God is doing because they, the mystery that covers the, the scene of suffering there. Uh, they misunderstand each other. The scene of Job's undeserved suffering was marked by mystery and the misunderstanding that comes from that, and God is in no hurry to clear any of it up. How much more was God pleased to allow mystery and therefore misunderstanding to pervade his innocent son's suffering? In fact, the mystery enveloped much, much more than just his suffering, but before he's even born, Mary is perplexed at the mystery of what is happening, what the angel is saying to her. John the Baptist is baffled. How can he be the Messiah? I'm in prison. The 12 never really got what he said about needing to go to Jerusalem and being handed over to the religious leaders who would then hand him over to the Gentiles and he would be beaten, mocked, and scourged, and crucified, and buried, and raised three days later. That was all mystery to them. What are you talking about? All the way to his profound suffering at the cross. Could there be any greater misunderstanding uttered than this? He could save others, but he can't save himself. Don't you know what he's doing? He can't save himself because he's saving us. Mystery there at the cross. Misunderstanding flowing from it. And God was in no hurry to clear it all up at the time, at the scene of suffering. He does not step in like he did at the river when Jesus was baptized. He doesn't descend down there at the moment like he did at the Mount of Transfiguration and say, now wait a minute here, let me tell you what's going on. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He doesn't step in and clear it up. What was God doing? Who was Jesus? 
How could he say he was the son of God but now be dead? We were hoping that it was him who would redeem Israel, two disciples said, within three days after his death. The scene of Jesus' undeserved suffering was marked by mystery and misunderstanding. And God was in no hurry to clear it all up. And again, remember, uh, there was no mystery, there was no misunderstanding on God's side. Nothing mysterious happening. Everything exactly as he determined. He knew every intimate detail of it, planned every detail of it. He is not confused about what is happening. From our perspective, there's mystery and misunderstanding. And most likely, God will ordain that a degree of mystery and misunderstanding will linger in your suffering. Your trial, your adversity, longer than you'd like. Why is this happening? Your whys will not all get answered. You won't get everything figured out. Your family and your friends may not understand, and their counsel they give to you from what they don't understand will not be helpful. Maybe the counsel you'll give to them from what you don't understand won't be helpful for the one who's suffering. But do you know what all this means about then the goal is endurance, right? Remember this? The comfort that you need to endure in your trial, in your suffering, and the strength that you need to endure in your suffering is not located in you getting the mystery solved. It just isn't. But a lot of times that's what we think. If I only knew what was really going on, then I, then what? God just doesn't work that way. Your comfort in your suffering for, for Job, it wasn't in him getting... It's interesting in Job how unconcerned God is about the mystery getting cleared up. It's because it's just not where the comfort and the strength is located. It's not in trying to figure out what you do not know. It's clinging instead to what you already do know about God. There's your comfort. There's your strength. You may need to grow what you understand about God and know about him. But you know what you need to know and you need to cling to it. Job found no help to endure by getting the why of his suffering. Jesus did not look for strength to endure at the cross in getting all of the misunderstandings cleared up in the people out in front of him. Comfort and strength for enduring are just not located there in what you don't know. Now let's do the last three that are brand new for today. Number five, the fifth gospel anticipation. God restores sinners through an innocent sufferer. Are you talking about Job or are you talking about Jesus? Yes. Go to Job chapter 42, verse 7. Job 42, verse 7. I'll say it again. God restores sinners through an innocent sufferer. Job 42, verse 7. It came about after Yahweh had spoken these words to Job, that Yahweh said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore... Take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job 
and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. Now watch this. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as Yahweh told them, and Yahweh accepted Job. Job's friends have God's wrath kindled against them by the time the scene of suffering comes to an end. It's a really strong statement that is said about them. Why? Is God wrathful towards them, angry with them? Because during their counsel, they did not speak of God what was right. They did not accurately represent what God was doing and what God was not doing in Job's suffering. And so this is another um, encouragement to make sure that your view of God is guarded, careful, carefully watched over at the scene of suffering, whether you are the one suffering or whether you're the one giving counsel. Better to stay quiet than not speak of God what is right. But notice that God is gracious. You might say, well, he's angry. Well, yes, but he's gracious. Who's the one initiating restoration? God. God is. Burnt offerings are commanded of them. That would be where they would lay their hands on the head of the, the bull or the rams and the animal's throat would get slit and blood would spill out. Then the entire animal would be put on the altar or burned, consumed entirely. No parts divided and divvied up and portioned out. It's the highest form of consecration and worship and restoration in sacrifice. It would be an unforgettable picture of the horror of sin and the price that had to be paid to atone for their sin. So here in the very early days, again, this is not post-Mosaic law. This is not post-Mount Sinai. This is before all of that. In the very early days, in the patriarchal period, in fact, since the garden, God had already made it clear the atoning nature of innocent blood in the place of the worshiper who has sinned was what was required. And they knew that. There was a way forward in restoration for these friends who sinned against God at the scene of suffering. But there's more. Look at verse 8. There's an important and. So take yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job. Offer up a burnt offering for yourself. And my servant Job will pray for you. I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly. So not just the atonement through innocent blood... Definitely that, but also a servant's intercession and prayer for them. God makes it clear that Job's acceptance by God, Job's acceptance by God, is their hope. That he will not act according to what they've merited. They will not get what they deserve because he accepts Job. What they have merited, they won't receive because God supplied a servant to intercede. There's a sacrifice and a mediator. It's amazing. 
And that gives you a category for the coming clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's provided so early on in human history. All of these Old Testament categories, these previews, these anticipations, they all get solidified with vivid detail in Christ's substitutionary suffering and mediating work as the great high priest. His innocent blood was shed at the cross in the place of the worshiper who has sinned. God withholds from us what we have merited because he accepts his son's mediating work and prayer. He utters out things like, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Praying even as he is shedding his own blood. When you think of your suffering that you're going through in your life, believer, Meditate on the better suffering of the servant Jesus who through his suffering has secured your restoration to God. Now, what's interesting, of course, is that, of course, Job's blood was was not innocent blood and therefore could not be shed in the place of his friends. The sacrifice and the mediator are not one person, but they're both present in Job. But in Jesus, the lamb is the the great high priest. The sacrifice is the mediator. Let your suffering remind you of his better suffering that restores you to God. And, And also remember this. This is sobering, but think on this. Just remember God's willingness to forgive at the scene of suffering. That's Job 42. God is willing to forgive at the scene of suffering. The scene of suffering oftentimes becomes, unfortunately, the scene of sinning. Why? Because sinners are suffering. And sinners, when they suffer, sin against each other and against God. But God does not turn his back on Job or his friends. He does not act indifferent to their sin. Oh, it's okay. He doesn't do that either. But in Job, God took the initiating step of restoration. He stepped toward the sinners. He provided restoration to himself. So first, just be prepared that the scene of suffering will most likely become the scene of sinning at some point in your life. Don't be shocked by that. Don't plan to sin against each other, against God. But realize that when you do, God is eager to forgive. He is eager to forgive. Lament your sin that you commit when you're suffering. Lament your sin when you give horrible, sharp, impatient counsel to one who's suffering. But be as eager as God at the scene of suffering to forgive and to restore when sin does occur. Be eager to facilitate forgiveness and restoration. God restores sinners through an innocent sufferer. Number six, the sixth gospel anticipation, great blessing awaits an innocent servant after undeserved suffering. Job had moments during his suffering when he anticipated that better days would come to him beyond his suffering. He hoped that great blessing would await him. He's an innocent man suffering. He, He hoped for that. But the pulse or the strobe of that, those moments of hope, it was like a, a flash of light in the night. The pulse of that strobe uh, didn't last long. It was over before he realized it. 
Never is Job able to turn the light of hope on in his suffering in the darkness and leave it on for comfort. It never happens. You can write these verses down. Job 14, verses 13 to 14. Job says, God, put me in the grave. And when you're done being angry with me, bring me out and let me have change. I will have my change then. I think it's a... um, an expression of an understanding of resurrection. Job is saying, look, just let me die, and then I know everything will be better when you're done being angry with me. Now, is God being angry with Job? No, but that's his misunderstanding. But he expresses something like that. I, I know that's, that, that a time is coming when, when your anger will be no more. Job 19, verses 25 to 27. Write that down. Job 19, 25 to 27. Probably the most famous verses in Job. Definitely, um, this is an anticipation of resurrection by Job. I know my Redeemer lives. He knows that his Redeemer has not died and disappeared from his scene of suffering. But he lives and he will make everything right. And even when his current body gives way, Job knows that from another body he will see God face to face. It's a glimpse of hope for a moment. The light comes on and then all you have to do is keep reading and the light goes back off. Job 23, 8 to 14. Specifically Job 23, 10 I know he is refining me, but I will come forth as gold. He knows a day is coming when he will be better than he is at the current moment. But then the light goes right back off. And in fact, Job 29, you can write that down. Job 29 is actually probably one of the saddest portions of all of Job. Because Job was pretty much hopeless by this point. Job was convinced, and Job 29 expresses that he's convinced his best days are not in front of him but are behind him and are irretrievable. He wishes and longs for the day when he had everything that he had before. When God was his friend. Is God not his friend anymore? What do we know from Job 1 and 2? God is still his friend. But that is the way he sees it, unfortunately. Go to Job 42, verse 10. You're probably still there. But one thing is sure. The God who blessed Job prior to his suffering indeed would do it again. Look at this. Yahweh restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and Yahweh increased all that Job had twofold. Then all of his brothers and all of his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that Yahweh had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. Yahweh blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons, three daughters. Go to the last verse. He died an old man full of days. God blessed him with a double portion after his suffering. Listen, Job, believing that God was going to do that, did not make it more sure to happen. And Job's moments of great weakness and hopelessness did not prevent the blessings from happening afterwards either. The blessing was secured for Job by God from God's character He is benevolent, he is generous, he is eager to reward. And this innocent sufferer with great blessing that followed is nothing compared to Jesus. 
But Job gives you a category for an innocent sufferer being blessed amazingly so after his suffering. And we don't have to wait for the New Testament to make that clear. Isaiah 52, verses 13 and 14. You can write those down. I'm going to let you look at those later just so that we can uh, keep moving along. Isaiah 52, verse 13. My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Isaiah 53, verse 10 and 12. He will be blessed with resurrection life. He will have length of days. He will be exalted to reign. Ephesians 1, 18 to 23. Ephesians 1, 18 to 23, he will be raised, he is raised from the dead. He has been seated at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all other powers and above every name. Philippians 2, 5 to 11, after descending into great suffering to obedience, even to the point of death, death on a cross. He is highly exalted and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Hebrews 12, 2, he had the joy set before him and he endured the cross. He despised the shame and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. These are expressions of tremendous blessing that no man on earth has ever experienced or will experience. It is reserved for him and him alone, the innocent sufferer. Whatever great blessing Job received after his undeserved suffering, it points to this greatest of all blessings for the greatest innocent sufferer, Jesus. And he has begun to enjoy his great blessing with even more yet to come. What about Jesus' followers? Let me remind you of his 12. Write down Matthew 19. Verses 27 to 29. Matthew 19, 27 to 29. I wish we had the time to look at all of these. These are astounding. Peter says, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, in the regeneration, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah, you've lost everything in following me. But there is blessing coming for you. That's for the 12 what about for us? How about John 14, 1 to 3? John 14, 1 to 3. I go to prepare a place for you, and I'll come for you, and so I receive you to myself, and I want you to be where I am. There's a blessing for the one for whom Jesus comes and takes with him to heaven. Heavenly blessing. John 17. In fact, this one's worth looking at. Let's go to John 17. I want you to see this prayer, and it'll weave some things together. Jesus' high priestly prayer for his disciples. John 17, look at verse 13. Jesus praying, But now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Here's our suffering. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So there's our suffering, but drop down to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So a blessing is coming where one day we will see the way the Father truly loves the Son. And the glory that is his, that's a blessing that is coming after our life of suffering. 
2 Thessalonians 1, 4 to 5. And verse 10, 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 to 5, and verse 10, there's kingdom blessing awaiting us. We suffer now, we're persecuted now, but there is a blessing that we are being made fit for in the kingdom. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 7. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 7, there is a heavenly hope of our inheritance. Revelation 21, a new heavens and a new earth. Every tear wiped away from every eye. No more suffering. No more tears. How great is our blessing that is coming, though we may have to suffer for a little while. Having now in our suffering great moments of strength and faith will not make that blessing more secure. And having now in our suffering even great moments of doubt and hopelessness will not vacate our blessing to come. Because our blessing is sure because it is rooted in the nature and the character and in the promise of our Savior who keeps his word and holds us fast. One last gospel anticipation. It's 1150, just another hour and we're done. Just kidding. Number seven, the undeserved suffering of an innocent servant is a theologically rich but costly scene. The undeserved suffering of an innocent servant is a theologically rich but costly scene. The scene of suffering will help you discover how much of a theologian you are, how good of a theologian you have been and will become. Job's scene of suffering reveals that the sufferer and the counselors alike think theological thoughts and they give words to those theological conclusions that they've drawn. Job suffering can't help but think, what is God like? Is he like what I thought he was like? Has he changed? Does God change? Is he aware of what's happening to me? Is he omniscient? Does he know what's happening? Does he care if he knows? Is he good? Is he powerful? How powerful is he? Is he limited in my suffering? Is he unable to do anything about this? Has he put any limits on my suffering? Will he keep me? Does he keep his promises? He is righteous and he judges righteously. Is that what's going on here? Job's thoughts and Job's friends' thoughts revolve around these theological subjects. They give voice and words to these over and over. They debated these things. Theology proper and God's attributes are turned over and over by them at the scene of suffering. Think also about what is said about man and about sin there. This is your anthropology and your homardiology. What is man like? Man is weak. Man is frail. He is not omniscient. He is incapable of seeing everything. And man is a sinner. He is deserving of wrath. Is that what's going on here with Job? Wrath? Man is capable of pride. He judges when he shouldn't. Job and his friends turned these theological thoughts over and over at ad nauseum as well. And think on the sanctification themes in Job, restoration and repentance are the good news and sanctification in Job. He's rebuked by God. He humbles himself. He becomes teachable. There are all kinds of sanctification categories in Job. 
When the believer suffers, the scene quickly turns theological. When everything gets stripped away, when life moves over to the edge of the grave and it peers over the dark edge, and when the smell of death comes and the coldness of death creeps close, believers think theological thoughts. We look back and we think theological thoughts. We have regrets. We see evidences of God's grace in our past. We consider the next life to come with Jesus as we look forward. The scene of suffering is infused with weighty theological moments. Those thoughts and those conclusions get expressed in a whole host of ways through tears, fears, prayers, laments, complaints, debates, songs. Trivial things go by the wayside. And the scene of suffering yanks all parties into theologically rich matters. The scene of suffering is a theologically rich place. And both parties, sufferer and counselor, rise or fall on these categories. So much is at stake. The scene of suffering is indeed theologically rich. It's an opportunity to gain more than you would have ever imagined you could gain concerning your knowledge of God and your love for God and your worship of God. But the scene of suffering is a theologically costly place too. At the end of it, God is heated towards friends. Job needed to be rebuked. It's a costly moment, and you might lose far more than you ever bargained for. Job's friends and Job eventually fell over on the wrong side of the theological edge. Misapplications from limited theology were made. Misappropriations of good, but limited theology were made concerning Job. They did not speak of God, what was right. Job was rebuked. He needed to repent, and he did God's hot displeasure was against his friends. And this gives us a category for another scene of suffering, the most severe scene of suffering ever, the cross of Jesus Christ. If Job's innocent suffering was a theologically rich but costly place, how much more so is Jesus' innocent suffering at the cross a place of the greatest theological riches and the most costly theological price a soul will pay? Think of all that we know about God there at the cross. We know what he is like. We know what he does. We know what he does not do. We know how he thinks. We know how powerful he is. We know how good he is. We know how terrifyingly fearful he is. We know how angry at sin he is. We know how full of love he is for sinners there. Think on all that we learn about the hideous nature of our sin there. How offensive it is to God that he would treat his son the way that he did, that he would crush his son, that he was marred more than any man because he's bearing my sin. Our sin on him, God's wrath on him, made him entirely unrecognizable. What does the cross say about human weakness? 
What does, what does it say? It says that you do not possess what you must have to be able to remedy your problem. Look at the cross and you will not find yourself there. You will find a substitute dying in your place, achieving everything for you that you cannot achieve. You are weak. Give it up. Think about the sanctification categories that leap forward from the cross. Our sanctification leaps with grace and power from the cross of suffering. And we could go on. We haven't even talked about Christology yet. It is the most theologically rich scene in all of human history, and it is a scene of suffering. And every soul rises or falls on the rich theology of the cross. That scene of suffering is an opportunity by grace there to gain more than you could ever imagine, theologically speaking. Your relationship with the God of the universe begins there. Your relationship with God is nourished there at the cross your whole life. Your relationship with God is protected there at the cross. And that scene of suffering is a sobering place because it is a costly event in which a man can lose everything there. A man can lose his soul there forgetting the suffering of Jesus Christ wrong. Drawing wrong conclusions about what God is doing there. What he is not doing there. And so forth. And so then what? What about your own scene of suffering? What an opportunity before you from God. What will you gain there at your scene that you never imagined possible in your relationship with Christ? What will, how will you grow theologically that you never anticipated And so much can be lost there because of a wrong view of God. Wrong conclusions made about him. Your scene of suffering will prove you to be a theologian. No doubt. Ready or not. Guard your view of God there. And keep your Bible close to you in your scene of suffering. And keep your Bible open Open your Bible with the one who is suffering. One of my most favorite times in all of life is reading the Bible to Matt Dodd for hours one day. And he kept waking up and he'd say, are you done? I say, only if you want me to. And he said, keep going. So we just did. We need to help each other think right thoughts about God when we suffer. Let's pray. Thank you for letting me go longer. Father in heaven, we are sobered by what this book introduces us to and what the rest of the Bible makes clear to us in your son Jesus. And we want to carry all of this well into our own suffering. Would you please help us? We cry out that in Jesus' name. Amen.